So we're going to be talking about this important subject, is there a meaning to life? A question that has challenged people through the ages. And what we hope to do today is explore what the Bible says about the meaning of life. Now, the first couple of slides are a little bit light-hearted, so bear with me while we do start with a little bit of brevity and a little bit of, of light-heartedness. This is a, a, a cartoon, I think the, the cartoonist is Schultz, is that right, Snoopy? Uh, where am I going? What am I doing? What is the meaning of life? So even uh, taxes cartoonists this question of what is the meaning of life? Uh, I forget who who did this particular one, I should, should quote it properly, but in between birth and death there's the in-between stuff. And what is the purpose of all that in-between stuff? Well, my uh, stepmom, my father remarried about seven years ago, eight years ago probably now, uh, thinks that a chocolate eclair is the reason for life. Uh, the meaning of life, what is this elusive concept, the meaning of life, are we here for a reason? Is there any logic to our existence, what lies beyond the universe? I must give it some serious thought, meanwhile I'll have a chocolate eclair. So let's think properly about this subject of what is the meaning of life? By asking first a separate question, what is it that has actually facilitated life? There are scientists, and I got this from the internet, uh, from a number of different sources. The internet tells us that the positioning of our planet is so perfect, its proximity to the nearest star, to the sun, is such that the temperature and the life life light intensity is perfect for life. That other planets may have temperatures that overlap with ours, but their extremes of temperature are so big that life is not possible on those planets. There's also the fact that we're proximate to other larger planetary masses, such as Jupiter and Saturn, whose gravitational mass mean that asteroids and things coming into our neck of the woods, within a universe perspective, are more likely to collide with them than with us. And there's also the fact that we have internal planetary regulatory systems in place, by which we mean plate tectonics. And the scientists say that this is very important because the carbon that everybody's worried about is getting subsumed below the Earth and taken back into the Earth only for it to emerge again. And these are some of the three things that are potentially quite unique about our planet and that scientists say are the reason why life exists on this planet. As well as the fact that we have carbon. And carbon, maybe you recognise that double helix, that's the DNA. Something that we each have within us that defines us as human beings and that defines us as individuals. And without carbon, that double helix structure could not be formed. And also, we're reliant on hydrogen oxygen when they combine together, they make water. A unique substance, if you like, amongst the liquids. And without that liquid, scientists say life could not exist. I'm doing a research project at the moment involving other chemical elements that are very numerous, very regular on our planet. But they're not fundamentally important in the same way that carbon, hydrogen and oxygen are to life. 
scientists say that without these, life as we know it could not exist anywhere else. So the other elements we could think of, aluminium or silica or calcium, any of the other key regular uh, elements that we find in the universe could not provide life in the way that these three unique elements do. So we come to the question of the meaning of life and where we choose to put our beliefs. There are those who hold religious beliefs, and I include myself in that context, who centre the meaning of life on a relationship with God. And there are others who put a secular belief, a non-religious belief, at the centre of meanings of existence in itself. And there's really two opinions in life. The first is that life came about through, if we call it a creative force in inverted commas, chance physics. Chance physics causing a big bang to happen and with all that energy of release and all the dispersion of everything, then that's how life came to be. Or, like me, you can think of God forming the creation that we see around us and forming mankind and the animals and, as we'll go on to look at through the passages we're going to look at, what the purpose of it all is. Because this particular option, to me, doesn't look very attractive because it doesn't have a purpose. There is no meaning if everything came about by chance. Whereas, as I said, if we look at the Bible and read it, we have the chance of understanding what the purpose of this life is. The difficulty comes for people in terms of absolute proof. The adherence, if you like, of the creative force being a big bang and random physics have no absolute proof, no material, conclusive, incontrovertible evidence that it happened by blind chance. That's why it's called a theory. Equally, I can't categorically, inconclusively prove to any of you that God made everything. They are both, I would suggest to you, belief sets. They both require an element of faith. What we find is that man, either through chance or through design, has come to the top of uh, the natural world. What we find, though, in the scriptures, in the Bible, is that God tells us that it was his purpose, his meaning behind making us in the way that we are. And that's what we're going to look at next. But let's be clear about a few things. Firstly, let's be clear that Certainly from my viewpoint, this word, this book that we hold in our hands, the Bible, makes the claim, and I believe is, the word of God. And by the word of God, I mean it's God's words that he has spoken to us and have been recorded in written form for us to be able to read again and again and reflect upon again and again. And the words in the Bible are said within the Bible itself 
to be inspired by him and given to men and to women to record over the course of 5,000 plus years. And that the Bible has been given to us to be able to teach and to learn and understand about God, about the Creator and about his purpose in why he made the earth and why he made people in the very first case. And the words of the Bible, when we look at them, have at the start the idea of creation and at the end something that is being fulfilled, something that is coming to pass that has been in his purpose. And that purpose, we come to read in the Bible, is the kingdom. And in a nutshell, that's what we're going to be thinking about today. The first being the starter, the creation, and why God and what God did, uh, and looking at that, and then ending with this idea of the kingdom, which the Bible ends on. So let's start with the creation itself. I hope you don't mind the Sunday school kind of graphic, which sets out the creation which the Bible says took place over six days of time. And we read in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Let's read that together. If you've got your Bibles, can we turn to that please? Genesis chapter 1 and verses 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And what we find is, as God describes for us how and what he made on which of the six days of the creation, what we find is that there is a purpose that things haven't been made arbitrarily, things have been made with a specific purpose in mind. And what we find is that science now is confirming some of the reasons why we have things like an atmosphere to protect us from cosmic rays from the sun. And as we'll look at now for day three, where God, we're told, made the dry land and the living vegetation that we see all around us, I was looking out the window looking for some, but we can just see a, a concrete car park. But hopefully you understand what I mean. God made plants for a purpose. Genesis chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the, let, sorry, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. So we've got here the concept that God is putting forward that he made the first of the plants and that he gave within them the capability for them to make more plants like themselves. So I have, uh, as a Welshman, the leek and the daffodils very close to my heart. The leek and the daffodil will only ever make a leek and a daffodil as their offspring, as their, their reproductive offspring. For you Scots, the thistle is very close to you. The thistle will carry on making thistles 
in perpetuity because that is how God has made them. And that's what we're told in the Bible, that the yielding fruit and the things that God made would continue to make things of themselves. Let's turn forward to Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 because this is where we start to understand why God made the plants. Verse 9 of chapter 2. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So we can start to understand from what God has recorded in the Bible that God made plants to be good for eating. Now you might think, if, if you're clever like me, well who did he make that was going to eat plants? We find that in Genesis uh, as well. We find that on days five and six, God made all the animals of the world. The sea creatures, the land animals, the birds, the insects. Genesis chapter one, verse 20. Let's go back a chapter. Chapter one, verse 20 to 22. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly, the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. Almost the same words that God used of the vegetation that he'd made that the animals would carry on making animals in their own kind. The whale making other whales. The bee making other bees. The sea lion making other sea lions. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So God, having put these animals in the seas and on the land, made them so that they would be able to reproduce and populate the earth. And then we read in uh, Genesis 1 verse 26 to 29 the account of God making mankind. Genesis 1 verse 26 God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. Replenish the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. And over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon the face of the earth, every tree in which there is fruit, to you it shall be for meat or for food. So we understand that God made man and woman, and that they were told, just like the animals were, to be fruitful, to multiply, have children that would be like you, people. And that, we're told, is the first meaning, the first purpose that God said. That people were to have offspring that were to replenish the earth 
and were to, as we read, have dominion and to subdue it. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2 next, verse 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Okay, so God hasn't just said your purpose is just to have more children. Your purpose here is to dress it and to keep it. That is the meaning of why I have made you. And the Lord God commanded the man, it continues, saying of every tree of the garden, you may eat. God made man to dress and to keep the garden. Yes, to subdue it and, and to have dominion over the animals, but to dress it and to keep it. And then we read that God gave Adam and Eve, or Adam particularly, another express purpose. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. We've read about that already. And brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And if we could then just finally read chapter 5, verse 1 of Genesis. This is the book of generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. So this was, I think, God's initial purpose, God's initial meaning for life on earth. God wanted the earth to be filled with life, with multiple forms of plant, animal, bird and fish. And all life forms were designed to reproduce themselves, resulting in more of their own kind. Mankind was given a specific meaning and a specific purpose in life. And he also was given the responsibility to be fruitful and multiply. But the unique thing about, God, about mankind was God said that he was made in the image and likeness of God. Did you notice that as we read it through? God described how he made the plants, but no mention of what they looked like relative to him. He then described how he made the animals and that they would carry on making more animals. But it was only man, only Adam, only Eve that we're told were made in the image and likeness of God. Well, what does that mean? In the image and in the likeness of God. I set about doing some art yesterday. You'll see the results of it. Hopefully you'll recognise that the picture is a self-portrait. <laughs> I'm very proud of it. It is something that is in the image and the likeness, roughly speaking, of me. So what does this term, the image and likeness of God, mean in practical terms? How are we to understand it? Are we to understand that we are in the likeness and image of God as a creator? Well, I think we're very inventive, people are. We're controlling our natural environment with all the concrete and, and all the other things that we can see outside there. But we're not creators in the way that God is a creator. 
Well, do we have the physical attributes that God has? I've got two arms, ten, nine, eight, eight fingers, two thumbs, ten toes. Is that what God's talking about, about being in his image and his likeness? Or is it that we have a symmetrical, upright appearance? Leonardo da Vinci, I think it was, did, I've forgotten the name of that particular piece of art where the man is stood like that, and you can see the symmetry of the human body is quite spectacular. Well, is it God's mental capacity that we're made in the image and likeness of, that we've got, unlike all the other animals, we have moral compunctions, we have higher emotions, and we've got the ability to communicate, just like God did when he said, let us make man in our image. Or is it that we have the same characteristics as God? By which I mean the intrinsic things within us rather than what we look like. Our morphology, if you like. So let's ask the question, how does God describe himself in the Bible? And that's an important question if we're trying to understand this concept of being made in his image and in his likeness. Because what God has said is, look, if you want to understand what this means, read this book, because I'm going to tell you what I'm, what I'm like. And we find out right in the very start that God is a communicator. Because God said, and it happened in the creation, God said, let there be lights in the sky. Let there be a sun, let there be a tiger, let there be a lion. And it happened. And in the same way, we have a level of communication that is by far and away greater than any other animal in the, in the natural world. But then God goes on, having described himself as a communicator, and by the way, this book itself is evidence that God is a communicator, Let's look at how God starts to describe himself in Exodus chapter 34. This is the account where Moses goes up onto the mount and is put in a cleft of a rock as it were. Because God does not want Moses to see him. Because he is too glorious but what we are told about God is not what he looks like but what he is like as a person as it were and I don't mean that glibly but as a being what is he like what are his characteristics and we read in Exodus 34 that the Lord descended in the cloud in verse 5 and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, unto the third and to the fourth generation. So in describing himself, God doesn't say, I'm six foot five tall, I weigh 250 pounds, or anything like that. He doesn't describe his morphology or what he looks like. He describes 
who he is as a being. And he describes himself, as we just read, as merciful, as gracious, as long-suffering, as abundant in goodness and in truth. A God who keeps mercy and forgives. And a God who will hold people to account. So we, if we're to understand this, this flow correctly, we have been made in the image and likeness of God. And I think what God is telling us through this is that he wants us to continue being in his image and in his likeness by also ourselves being like him in respect of these characteristics. And God furthermore expands this to us in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. It might be verse 19 for connection. Yeah, verse 22 of Galatians chapter 9. God, I think, is describing himself here, but also encouraging us to be like him. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. When I left home this morning, I was a little bit panicked because my car was telling me the journey would take two and a half hours. It's because I plugged in that I wanted to go to the junction with Rattray Place and Rattray Street, which would have taken me to the ferry, I think, uh, which is why it was taking two and a half hours. As it turned out, I needn't have worried because it didn't. I managed to have a little nap outside for five minutes before uh, you all arrived. The reason for saying this, the little story, is that I could have put my foot down a bit. I could have travelled at 85 miles an hour. I could have travelled at 80 miles an hour, even 75 miles an hour, to be able to make sure that I got here on time. And while these things are the capability that I have, there is a law against it, and it's the law of the land. What God describes to us through this passage is that there is no law against the characteristics that God exhibits and that he wants us to exhibit. And if you like, they therefore become our meaning and our purpose in life. To live like God wanted us to do from the start. Let's read those ideas again. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Let me ask you a question. It's just occurred to me. Maybe you've got young... No, I don't think you have young children. Maybe you've got young grandchildren. How would they want you to be? What is it that they see as being your purpose in their lives? Is it not to nurture them? They might not be able to communicate that to you, but when they stood there, two and a half, 
three foot tall maybe, maybe a bit smaller in your case. Arms up, like this, they are wanting you to show them love. That is the meaning you have in their life. And it's also the meaning that God wants us to have in life. It's our purpose. God has made us all to be able to reproduce and, and to live as a large society. But he wants us to live these characteristics. That is our meaning and our purpose in life now. But is there a, a greater purpose to life? Because in a sense, the slide that I showed earlier about birth and death and the stuff in the middle, we've talked about the stuff in the middle, but what about the end? Is there a purpose to life? Well, one of the prophets in the Old Testament gives us what God's purpose was when he made the earth. Yes, he made it to be lived in, but he made it to be lived in in a special way. And the prophet says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So God, we understand, made the earth, made the animals in it that we were to have dominion over as another part of his creation. And that we're to have an understanding, a knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And that was one of the purposes that God set in motion when he made everything, that the knowledge of the Lord would be present. We come now to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told in John chapter 3 that God so loved the world, and by the world we mean the people in it, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this ties in with the passage I think from Habakkuk where the idea of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord filling the earth as the waters cover the sea is centred to start with on this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God gave to act as a demonstration to us of how far short we fall of those characteristics that we read about in Galatians. And that because of that, we need forgiveness. And God was willing to point this out to us in such a powerful way to help us understand. And he did it by giving his own son. And so meaning and purpose in God's perspective is tied up in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God demonstrating his commitment to mankind about the purpose that he has. Because we read earlier in uh, Exodus chapter 34 that God, yes he was merciful, yes he was willing to forgive, but that he also holds people to account. What we learn here is that God is willing to forgive, is willing to demonstrate his forgiveness through giving his son, but we're to be held to account in terms of how we respond to that sacrifice. The Bible tells us quite clearly that without the sacrifice of Jesus, 
Mankind, and each one of us, is without hope. The Bible hope is centred on the sacrifice of Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Let's ask, before we go on to where it ends, this question. Or let's emphasise what the Ecclesiastes writes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. And this is a conclusion on what life is all about. It's Solomon that penned these words after a life of having anything he wanted. And he concluded, the end of life, the most important thing, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. Because this, on its own, is the duty of man. So if we want to understand what the meaning and the purpose is, that's, a, that's something to, to, to hold on to. The duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. But we talked about Jesus and his sacrifice and that it was the first part, if you like, and there was something else to follow after. Let's think about the words of Jesus himself when he taught his disciples to pray. He said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come, he said. It was one of the very first things he taught his disciples to pray about. This idea of a kingdom coming. And tied in with the idea of the kingdom coming, Jesus went on to teach them about prayer in saying these words, Thy will be done in earth, even as it is in heaven. I think we're all familiar with the concept of angels, perhaps doing the bidding of God. But down here, on terra firma, the will of God is not really being done. And Jesus' prayer was the will of God would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the mechanism for it to happen would be this idea of the kingdom. And so we've got two pictures of Jesus now. The first is the suffering sacrificial lamb of God, given for the sins of the world and those who had turned to God and to fear him and to follow his commandments. And the alternate idea of Jesus coming back as the king of the world. And note that I said that, king of the world. When he was crucified, written across the top, the king of the Jews. The Bible teaches us that the king that will return, Jesus, will be king over the whole world. And that the leaders that we see may be tomorrow, maybe the day after, maybe in a generation's time. But that the leaders of the world will come to the king and pay him tribute. So if that is the purpose of the earth, that God made man to live in it, to be fruitful. Then he sent his son to demonstrate to people how much God loved them and that he wanted them to be responsible for their actions and turn to him. We've then got this concept of the kingdom, which is something that has a specific purpose and a specific meaning. And we're going to read now about what it's going to be like. <clears throat> the prophet Isaiah writes these words. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. A similar idea to what we read about in Habakkuk of the knowledge of the Lord being throughout the whole earth. Not just within an isolated building here in Dundee or one in Edinburgh or Glasgow. But everybody who's out there doing whatever they're doing today, being aware of God. But the idea that's been put forward in this passage is also the idea of no more hurt. The world, regrettably, is ravished by wars. What God promises as his meaning for life on the earth in the kingdom is that there will be no more wars. And that's what Isaiah records for us in Isaiah chapter 2. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now clearly man's capability to destroy each other has gone on from swords and spears. We now have military hardware that was unthought of even just ten years ago. But the central point is this idea that mankind will not be trading and learning about war anymore in the kingdom age. Because it, was a, it will be a time of peace, ruled over by a king of peace. And what a king Jesus will be. In the Psalms we read these words. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. If we were to look out the window and perhaps think about some of the areas of the towns that we know, we'll understand that there is poverty. There's poverty here in Dundee, there's poverty in Glasgow, there's poverty in Swansea where I grew up. But there's also poverty throughout the whole world, with children not having enough food to eat. Jesus, we're told, as the king, will rule and judge the people in a way that is righteous. Now, if we don't know what righteous means, it simply means doing things that are right and godly. And that is what we are promised in the kingdom age. And thinking about children in Ethiopia or Bangladesh or any of the other poverty-stricken parts of the world, we're told in the Psalms that there will be a handful of a corn, not just upon the plains where you'd expect to see corn, but even on the very tops of the mountains where food cannot physically grow now. God in the Kingdom Age will make the world so plenteous that everybody will have enough. The other thing that God says about the kingdom age, the other thing that he says will be a meaning and a purpose, is that nations will flow to Jerusalem, the new centre of the world, as it were, where Jesus the King will rule from. And all nations, we're told, will flow unto it. No more competing for resources. All nations will go to the king. And this verse in Isaiah chapter 45 tells us that whatever our doubts, whatever our worries about climate change, 
about destruction of the coral reefs, about whether this planet can sustain <clears throat> life much beyond my lifetime. God tells us that he himself formed the earth and he made it. <clears throat> he tells us that he did not make it in vain, but he made it to be lived in. And so we come to the final slide, which is simply reminding us, if you like, of the words of Jesus. And the final words of Jesus, out of all the things that he could have said to us, what he spoke about was his return. And he said four times in the last chapter of the whole Bible, in the prophecy that he gave to John, he said these words, I am coming soon. And that is my sincere belief, that Jesus Christ will return to the earth, yes, having lived first as an example and as a sacrifice, but will return as the king of the earth. I mentioned that the, the planet will maybe not be able to survive beyond my lifetime, that there are concerns out there. I've also mentioned previously about when I think Jesus might come back in terms of could it be tomorrow, could it be the day after, could it be 20, 30 years time. I don't know for sure, friends. I don't know for sure when he will return, but I'm convinced he will return. And I also believe that it will be soon. And he will bring meaning and purpose to the life that we have. The question is, are we going to be ready for him? Because whether we're ready or not, the Bible teaches us that Jesus will come back. What God encourages us right from the start is to understand what he is like. We were made, if you remember, in his image and his likeness. And the only way we can get to understand God and his purpose and the meaning of our lives is by picking up this book. And what God tells us is that he wants of us a commitment. A commitment to listening to the words he's written to us, but also action. And one of the first things he wants us to do is to be baptised. To demonstrate our faith in what he says, to demonstrate our faith that Jesus gave his life for us and was raised from the dead. And that through the waters of baptism, God invites us to do the same. To go through a kind of death of the old things that we did. And to emerge out of the water again in a new way, trying to follow God's commandments. But I'll leave you with those words of Jesus that he repeated, he believed them to be so important, he repeated them four times. I am coming soon.